privilege to welcome this morning a guy you've seen all summer. He's an intern here at the church for the summer. His name's Andrew Edward. Let's welcome him up this morning. As Gabe said, uh, my name is Andrew Edward. I'm your humble summer intern uh, for the summer of 2017. Uh, my time is actually coming to a close here. Uh, I only have a few weeks left. Uh, but many of you may not actually know who I am when you've just seen me meandering around the church, um, not doing anything particular. And that's primarily what I've been doing this summer, not doing anything in particular. Uh, you just see me wandering around the church. And if you come during the week, I'm just sitting behind the info desk, uh, once again, not doing anything in particular. Um, but I, I've enjoyed my time here. I, I just, um, the experiences that I've had here um, have been very unique because I, as an individual, just in terms of my career path and my career goals, am not particularly focused on ministry. I, I'm more concerned with the academic side of, um, of the whole process of going through seminary and things like this. But being in a church uh, such as Risen King, I was able to find out throughout my weeks here and the next few weeks, I'm able to find out what happens in a church between Sundays. Uh, usually I'm only here on Sunday mornings. You know, I've seen the band warm up and, you know, what happens afterwards, just debriefing the sermon, things like this. But it's interesting to see what goes on in a church between um, Sundays and who exactly is putting in the work to make, you know, all three services happen. And, and I think uh, those are very unique experiences. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, I was introduced, I believe, something like eight weeks ago here in the church. Uh, just to recap, uh, I'm a senior student at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, I have to say that because otherwise you won't care what I'm saying up here. Uh, so I have to just state my credentials uh, just so I have some semblance of knowledge. Um, but uh, I was talking to Pastor Mike earlier this week, and uh, I'm only preaching um, to the 830 service today. And uh, He's, I said, you know, uh, you usually go for like 40, 45 minutes, right? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, I don't think I can do that. I, I, I don't think I can go that long. I was like, will that be okay? And he said, the 830 group is a really good group. And he's like, uh, he's like I experiment with them. <laughs> and, he's, and, he said, uh, and he said, they'll be very happy if you let them out early. And I said, okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll see how long we go. But granted, I think I'll be shorter, shorter than Pastor Mike. You know, the music, uh, Gabe always comes up here and he starts playing then. You know, Pastor Mike has to rush to close up as everybody's getting a little restless. Uh, whatever the case may be, uh, you know, um, here we are. Uh, for our text today, we're going to be looking at uh, Joshua chapter 23. Uh, I just wanted to stay in line with uh, what Pastor Mike has been uh, doing in terms of the series, uh, doing a study in Joshua. Um, I'm skipping kind of to the end here uh, with Joshua chapter 23. And... Um, Part of my duties here at Risen King was to teach a Sunday night course on the New Testament, just doing overarching themes in the New Testament. Part of my research at Princeton is to focus on the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John. And as I told my class on Sunday nights that as we were moving into Paul's epistles and moving away from the Gospels, I said my expertise starts to dwindle as we move away from the Gospels because that's where my research is focused. So as we go into Paul and the minor epistles, my expertise starts to dwindle. And, but nevertheless, I still have a good overarching knowledge of the New Testament. In this particular case, from the Old Testament, I am not an expert in the Old Testament at all. Hopefully that is not evident today. But here we are, Joshua chapter 23. Let's read the text. Um, I'm going to read it myself. I'm not particularly good with 
reading as a group, and I have the mic, so you're going to hear me just going too fast or going too slow, just pronouncing the wrong words. So I'll just read it, and I hope you listen. It's about 18 verses. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already put cut off, I couldn't say if that was out or put, uh, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of, one man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out the nations before you, for they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed, just as all the good things that the Lord your God promise concerning you have been fulfilled for you. So the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down before them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly and from off the good land that he has given you. So this is Joshua's farewell address. It's towards the end of the book of Joshua. Farewell addresses are very important, not only in our uh, modern time today, but also particularly in ancient times. Farewell addresses were fairly frequent, not only in the biblical text, uh, but also in other ancient pieces of literature. Uh, in this particular case, Joshua, as he says, he says, I'm old, I'm near the end of my life, I'm about to go the way of the earth, I'm about to go back into the earth, and he's giving the tribes of Israel a final address. And we can find farewell addresses elsewhere in the biblical text, particularly in the Gospel of John. At the end of the Gospel of John, towards the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus gives his farewell discourses. And he's constantly hinting at his death uh, with his disciples. They're not really understanding that he's about to die, but he's kind of telling them that this is how I want you to live after I die. I've been your leader for such and such a time, and this is how I want you to live. It's exactly the case here. Joshua's saying, I'm towards the end of my life. I've been your leader since after Moses died. And now I'm about to go, this is how I want you to live. Uh, other uh, pieces of uh, farewell addresses can be found in other ancient literature, uh, such as in ancient Greece, uh, the philosopher Plato had these dialogues, and in one in particular is called the Phaedo. The Phaedo is the death scene of the philosopher Socrates. And Socrates in this particular scene has been accused of particular crimes, 
and he's been found guilty and therefore sentenced to death. And one of the many execution methods of the ancient Greeks, they gave a vial, not a vial, a goblet of hemlock to the accused, and the accused must drink it, essentially uh, executing themselves. So Socrates takes this uh, vial of hemlock, and he drinks it, and as the poison starts to set in, he's surrounded by his disciples, knowing that he's about to die, they're all present, and he begins to philosophize about the afterlife and how they should live good and peaceable lives in the here and now, and then eventually he passes on. These farewell addresses are quite important. For us, I think the most relatable uh, idea of a farewell discourse is if we have a patriarch or a matriarch in the family, grandmas, grandpas, great grandparents, whatever the case may be, uh, if they're passing on and we know that they're about to pass on and they're in what we call a deathbed, you know, we all surround them and perhaps they'll give a few parting words, just that something to hold on to. That's the most relatable idea of a farewell discourse that I can come up with. In the chapters preceding Joshua chapter 23, the leaders of the tribes of Israel come before Joshua and he allots for each, each tribe a piece of land uh, that they shall live on for the rest of their lives in the promised land. Uh, they're in a very fortunate situation, but as you can see in this text, it, uh, Joshua's saying, just follow the Lord your God. That's all you have to do. He's given, all, given you all these blessings. He's driven out every enemy before you, and all you have to do is not transgress the covenant of the Lord your God and follow as best you can the law of Moses. That's all you have to do. Otherwise, and then he says what will happen if you do not do this, you will be wiped out from the land. God will essentially curse you. He won't drive out enemies for you if you go and transgress the covenant of the Lord your God and go and uh, associate with other gods and they with you. And we might be thinking in our heads that this is a fairly easy command to follow. Joshua is simply saying, don't go and worship other gods because they're in the, land, they're in the promised land, but there's still remnants of the, the previous occupants. There's still foreign gods present in the promised land. And Joshua's simply saying, don't go and worship them. It's why would you put the blessings that God has given you in jeopardy? You do not want to be like your ancestors who did not get to see the promised land because they went and worshiped other gods. Even Moses didn't even get to see the promised land because he was disobedient to God. So why would you want to put in jeopardy? You're here now in the land. I've given you each, each tribe of Israel a piece of land to live on. Then they'll be well provided for in this land of milk and honey. Why would you want to put your blessings in jeopardy? Why would you want to put them in jeopardy just to go and worship a dead foreign idol that has done nothing for you thus far as opposed to serving the Lord your God who has given you every blessing you can think of? Why would you want to put it in jeopardy? We're in this fortunate position that we can look at this text and we can say, yeah, why would you put it in jeopardy? You're looking at these stubborn Israelites who have given God nothing but trouble up until now and you're saying, why would they want to put it in jeopardy? We're also in the fortunate position to know that we can look ahead in the story and they do put it in jeopardy and they do give up their blessings. They go and worship these other gods and then eventually they're conquered by the Assyrians and exiled by the Assyrians. Then they're conquered by the Babylonians and exiled by the Babylonians. They made this very, for lack of better words, this very stupid mistake to go and worship foreign gods and give up the blessing and transgress the covenant that the Lord their God has made with them. And we wonder, why would they do such a thing? They could have lived on this piece of land, this land flowing with milk and honey, not had any more problems for the rest of their lives. All they had to do was worship the God who had given them all this. It's a pretty easy decision to make if, when we think about it. The problem is here that, like I said, we have the privilege of having this perspective, knowing the story, knowing what happens in the story, but 
um, I don't think we have the privilege to say that we are better than them in these cases. I think we make similar decisions to the Israelites, even in this case. Can we all say that we are blessed people? We all are very blessed people, right? Even right now, it's uh, 9.15 in the morning. Uh, you've made your way here to the, to the church. Uh, for some of you, you've got your kids ready. Uh, for some of you, you're happy that you woke up on time, got here on time. You drove, drove here safely. You're able to worship God, have community with other believers. And you just consider that a blessing, right? Just in the, you know, the few hours that you've been up, you've experienced a lot of blessings. And I always want you to keep that in mind, that you are blessed people. But you ever have those particular times in life where just everything seems to be going so well? Just like every facet of your life just clicks, just, you know, family-wise, relationship-wise, uh, work, uh, career-wise, financially, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, just everything's going so well. And you can say that's kind of like the position that the Israelites are in. They're in this very advantageous position. The God is pleased with them. He's given them so much. They're, they don't have to work for anything. They just have to live off the land that he's given them, right? And that's kind of the positions we find ourselves in, right? And I'm going to speak for myself now that I, found my, I find myself in these positions. But it's in these positions that I think we're the, mo we're the most vulnerable to doing something very idiotic, right? To put these blessings in jeopardy. For me personally, I find myself sometimes on these planes where everything is going so well. Just you wake up and then you just realize like, wow, there's nothing to be stressed about. I'm going to have a great day. Like it's just something about it. But I find myself on these planes and then all of a sudden I just do something. Just something to put that in jeopardy. It's not even a spur of the moment thing and I'll get to that later. It's just you do something stupid and then it, it, your, your life just dive bombs and then you just you end up down here. And all of a sudden, you're in this mental state that you don't want to be in. You're stressed. You're anxious. You did something so stupid to put all your blessings in jeopardy. And then you're down here. And then I, for myself, I, I slowly climb my way back up, you know, through a lot of prayer and a lot of uh, just, just uh, talking with God. And he's showing me why he brought me so low. And I learn these lessons. I learn these lessons. And I become a better person. My faith is stronger now. And I find myself in life again. And all of a sudden, I hit that nice smooth patch again. Then I do something stupid. Now, it's not down here anymore. It's all the way down here, all right? Because God's essentially saying, like, you didn't learn last time when, you're, when I brought you down here, so I'm going to bring you lower. So now you're all the way down there. And then once again, I start climbing back up. I'm learning more lessons now. My faith is even stronger, all right? Now, this happens about seven times in my short life, okay? So you just get lower and lower to the depths of hell all the way down, and then you keep climbing back up. And without a doubt, you're going to do it again. At some point, you're going to do it again. All right? I don't care how old you are, you're going to do it again. And I think that's, that's, that's often the case here, especially with the Israelites. When they're exiled, and this is when all the major and minor prophets start to do all their writings, what do they say? They're, he's always talking about the Israelites as these uh, hard-hearted, heavy-headed, just disobedient people who always transgress the law of the Lord their God. Even when God is giving them all these blessings, Joshua spells it out so well here. He says he's cleared out all these enemies for you. He's never failed on any promise he's given you throughout history. And all you have to do is not be disobedient to him. All you have to do is not go and worship other gods. It's such a simple task. And how many times did Moses tell them? How many times did Joshua tell them? And finally he's about to die and he's telling them again. And they just go and do it again and then 
once again, it's all lost. It's all squandered. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, the way I think when, not only when I'm uh, writing sermons, not all, but also when I'm writing papers or just, just presenting myself with a problem, I essentially try to take any issue I formulate into a problem and therefore a question, and then I have to find the answer to that question. Therefore, I can work my way back and then find out why, how to resolve the dilemma. The particular question that I came to today is that, you know, we're, we're on these smooth planes of life, and from the reactions I heard, I think everybody can find this rather relatable. When you're on these smooth planes of life, all of a sudden you just have this itch to just do something stupid and mess it up, right? To jeopardize your blessings. The problem I came up with, the problem I wanted to solve is, why is it? Why are we so prone to stupidity when things are going so well? And I thought about this, and I thought about this, and I looked, and I was, and I was thinking about the, the major prophets and the minor prophets. What do they write about? They're, yeah, they write about the stubborn Israelites, but what is it in particular that the Israelites and ourselves in turn seem to lack that we put our blessings in jeopardy? I don't think it's often talked about in, in, uh, in churches. I know for a fact that when, we, when I used to attend my home church, it wasn't the case. I don't think I've been here long enough to uh, uh, make a judgment about that, but I think it's not often talked about, and I haven't even said it yet, but I don't think it's often talked about because, excuse me, because it's a very confusing topic. It, it, it uh, clashes with other ideas and our perceptions of God. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, uh, we don't. We say it. We said yes. Fear the Lord your God. When we read the psalmist and talking about the fear of the Lord, when we read the major and minor prophets and they're talking about fearing the Lord, even when we read uh, the Old Testament history books, it says talking about the fear of the Lord. But I just don't think we get it because we are constantly infatuated and focused on the love of God that is exposed through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice that we often forget about the wrathful nature of the Old Testament. We kind of put a muzzle on God and say, let's just cover that part up and let's just focus on the love of God. See, it's just these very silent reactions here. I can see that uh, it's just not something that, I don't know if we don't want to talk about, but I think uh, I'm going to force you to talk about it today, okay? So, <laughs> so when we talk about the fear of God, once again, I have to relate it back to myself, that when I'm on these planes of life, and I even said, even when your spiritual life is just going so well and everything is just clicking, I find it to be the case that even though you feel that you're obedient to God, and you, maybe you are being obedient to God, for some odd reason, you feel that God can't touch you when you're just, when life is just going so well. And what I mean by that is that when I said I do something stupid, it's not those urgent spur of the moment things. I'm not talking about you're sitting at work and your coworker asks to cover for you and you just lose it. This is the sixth time in the month that he's asking to cover for you, all right? I'm not talking about those types of sins. I'm not talking about those sporadic, just emotionally driven sins. I'm talking about those premeditated, conscious sins. You see, when in this text, Joshua says, don't go and worship other gods. He's not talking about sporadic breaking of the law of Moses, because you don't accidentally sacrifice a goat to another god. You don't do that accidentally. That's not an emotional spur of the moment thing. That's premeditated, that's conscious. 
You have to go and buy the goat. You have to take the goat. You have to, you know, put it on the altar or walk to wherever this foreign dead idol is and put it on the altar, and then you have to sacrifice it. You don't do that accidentally, okay? So when I'm talking about those sins that kind of tank your life, it's those conscious, premeditated sins. It's often vices, I think. When I say vices, I mean certain addictions. I don't know what that is for you, but it's often the case that that is. And even then, you must ask, why do we give in to that? Why are we so willing to put our blessings in jeopardy only, to, only for momentary gratification? For these Israelites, I, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. Like, why would you go to a dead God who has literally done nothing for you your entire life and oppose the Lord your God who has given you all these blessings? Why would you go and sacrifice? What kind of gratification is that giving you? Maybe they get some type of mental high. I don't know, but it's only for a moment because right after that, God strikes them down. So when we do these premeditated, pre-con- uh, premeditated willing sins, what are we saying to God in that moment? Even though God, uh, Joshua is telling all these threats that God will do if they go and worship other gods, he says, I'm going to wipe you away from this land. You're going to be as a non-existent thing on this land. I will no longer fight for you. And they, yet they still go and do it. And what does that say about their mind state? What does that say about my, our mind state when we willingly go against God? You essentially say, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of the punishments that you have threatened against me. You're nothing, right? You kind of put a muzzle on God. You kind of say, you got no teeth. You're not going to do anything to me. You kind of say, I am the God of my own life, right? And all the threats that you have, they're all idle threats. They're, they got nothing on me. And that's problematic. And that's what I mean when I say the, the root issue here is that we lack fear. We lack fear. We're so invested and so infatuated with the love of God that we think that he won't do anything to me. He's not going to do a thing to me. He's not going to touch me. And I think that's exactly what the Israelites think. And they learned the hard way. They're exiled twice. Okay, I, I say I've been brought low. I've never been exiled from my country. Okay, They're exiled. They're prisoners for years upon years. Most of them die, and then a new generation comes out. You see... We can look back into the, New, the Old Testament narrative, and I think the most obvious uh, example of the Israelites lacking fear is when Moses is in, uh, uh, is in Mount Sinai speaking with God, receiving the Ten Commandments. And the Israelites just, for some reason, freak out. They're, they go up to Aaron, like, Aaron, he's dead. Just take all this gold, melt it up, make a golden calf for us. We'll worship that. And you know, the presence of God is right there. They can see the fire on top of Mount Sinai. And they're so arrogant, so non-fearing of God that they want to worship another God right at the base of that mountain, even, they, even though they know that God is right up there. In the face of God, they are worshiping other gods. That's extremely problematic because when we're on these smooth planes of life and then we willingly sin... God is the one behind all these blessings. And when we willingly, consciously sin, we sin right at the feet of the mountain, even though God's presence is right there, prevalent throughout our lives. And we say, I'm not fearful of you. Everybody following? If this was my class, I would uh, pause for questions, but uh, we do not have time for that. (laughs) So... um, 
the fear of God is a, partic- is a difficult thing to talk about. It's a conflict in language, talking about a loving God and talking about being fearful of that same God, running to that God when you have all these problems, but yet being afraid of him. It's uh, problematic. That's why I think it's so difficult to talk about, and that's why I think it's not very often talked about. Does anybody here C.S. Lewis fans? All right. <laughs> I am a fan of, as well. Um, I read uh, a lot of his uh, theological works. Um, the reason I think C.S. Lewis is such a prolific writer is because he's this classically trained Oxford uh, professor in literature, and he has this ability to write about, even though he has no formal theological education, he has this ability to write so exquisitely on difficult topics. And because he's this literature professor, he's able to convey these difficult ideas in very simplistic language. And you'll be surprised how much you can find in the Chronicles of Narnia. All right. So I have here the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this particular scene, uh, Lucy and Susan are being taken by Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to go and see Aslan, which is uh, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Aslan is a lion. And the children don't seem quite to understand this. Uh, so Mr. And, Be- Mr. and Mrs. Beaver attempt to uh, just kind of explain his character and what, they're, what to expect when they do meet him. I like reading from a book. Um, <laughs> so, you'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I am to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. St- Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is what I mean. C.S. Lewis has this ability to bring these ideas into conflict, but somehow it just makes sense. It's a lion. Christ is characterized as a lion in this case, and if it's Christ, in turn, God... If God is characterized as a lion, of course you wouldn't go near a lion expecting to be safe. I mean, the lion looks fairly tame, but you would be rather cautious, wouldn't you, just approaching a tame lion? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. The character of God is inherently good, but it's inherently unsafe. Because you have to understand that God demands obedience, and when we think about the fear of the, God, fear of, fear of the Lord, especially in the... Um, the Johannian epistles, first and second and uh, third John, when it talks about, you know, just the love of God and perfect love has no fear, we have to reckon with these ideas because the obedience to God when, the, when Joshua is giving these commands to the Israelites and he's saying, don't transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, he's not saying obey him because you're afraid of him. No, obey him because he's given you all these blessings. He is a loving, good God to you. That's the reason you should obey him, not because you fear him. 
But if you do transgress his covenant, if you willingly go against it, yes, you should be very, very afraid. And you should be afraid to even think about transgressing that covenant. You see, God is a good God. We can all readily agree upon that. But he's not safe. And as Mrs. Beaver says, um, if anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So if you oppose God with a proud face and an arrogant mindset and say, you can't touch me, you're just plain silly. That's what Mrs. Beaver is saying. You're just plain, learn from Mrs. Beaver. You're just plain <laughs> silly if you approach the throne without trembling and knocking of knees. You're just plain silly. So it's the fear of the Lord, you see. The fear of the Lord must be an intricate part of our relationship with Christ and God, therefore. The fear of the Lord must be there, just as we love God and he demands our obedience and we feel indebted to him because of his sacrifice. And we feel indebted to him because of his love that he lavishes upon us every single day. Once again, the reason we are here is because he has allowed us to. It is his mercy, it is his grace. He's imputed everything, every good thing upon us. And therefore, a God so powerful that he can give you all these blessings in the same way he can take it all away, and that's a fearful thing. So when you, oppose, when you come to him, in the same way you come confidently to the throne of grace, come with knocking of knees, trembling, because if you don't, you're just plain silly. I told you I'd let you out early. I am going to let you out early. I'm going to close in prayer now. And after I finish praying, um, called me old school for this, but I like giving benedictions. So after I finish praying, please rise and then uh, receive the benediction. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Heavenly Father, we thank you just that you are a good God who is inherently good. And we forgive us for just not fearing you sometimes, especially when life is going so well, we tend to forget part of your character. We tend to think that you have no teeth. We tend to take your power away in our minds and we oppose you arrogantly. Forgive us for that. Show us mercy because you are a good God, a merciful God, a righteous God. Fill us with your love and your power and your grace, but also your fear, Father God. It's a complex thing to learn, but help us to learn it. Help us to approach your throne with confidence, seeking comfort and refuge, but also with trembling of knees and uh, just a humble heart. I thank you for your love once again and for all you do for us. Take us here now and may we go out into the world today on this blessed Sunday and may we think about your love and your wrathfulness and how we should fear you and may we make it an intimate part of our relationship with you. We thank you for all you do in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please rise and receive the benediction. classical benediction. I'm sure many of you heard it. From uh, Numbers chapter 6, starting at verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Have a good morning, everyone. Turn around. Give somebody a hug.